And welcome to yet another episode of Hitting for the Cycle. I'm your host, Tank and Dictor, and as usual, we've got a lot of news to discuss, and this week we've got some pretty good news coming from both the New York teams. The Yankees and the Mets are obviously on their respective win streaks, and in addition, we also got to talk about the LA Dodgers and their unexpected slide, and of course, not too long before that, though, we have a very special guest coming on in Brady Reuter. He will be coming on to discuss the Baltimore Orioles and their interesting rebuild situation. But of course, before that we get into all that, I would like to remind you as always to please give us a follow on all of our forms of social media, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Review and Preview Sports. And in addition, do not forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. So without further ado, let's get into the Yankees this week. It has been a very good stretching game for the Yankees. They came off a big win against the Houston Astros and, you know, Going into the National Series, I think a lot of people expected a bit of a letdown because, you know, the Astros were was the series that everyone was looking forward to. You had the whole cheating scandals and whatnot. And they're they're a pretty tough team. Don't get me wrong. They had a solid lineup with the addition of Josh Bell and Kyle Schorber and, of course, good pitching, especially Max Scherzer. So you knew that was going to be a tough one. And before we talk about that series, let's go into the comments. Hello, my friend. How are you? Well, Sam, hello to you. How is it going? Good to see you commenting. And folks, if you want to comment, please do so in the comment section below. We encourage all your comments, and I would love to keep interacting with you guys as we watch more of this episode. So anyways, let's get to the Yankees. Game one, obviously, was a dud. They were going in the eighth inning, tied at three. There were a lot of home runs in this game. DJ had two solos in this game. Gary even hit a bomb in between that one, but Unfortunately, that was when Jonathan Loisega had a meltdown, and this was probably his first bad relief outing of the season, but, you know, it's one bad stretch, so I can't really hold that against Jonathan Loisega. Luis Sessa didn't really do much better. The key blow in this game was a three-run home run off the bat of Josh Harrison, so the Yankees would go on to lose this one 11-4, and the real game in this series, which hot take of the season, I actually think this might have been one of the best games of the season for the Yankees because... Going up against Max Scherzer, he had a 14-strikeout performance. And, you know, in years past, you would think that this would be a loss for the Yankees because, obviously, this is a lineup that is very reliant on the home run, as I have said time and time again on this show. But, you know, luckily this year, they have had solid pitching from guys other than Garrett Cole. Corey Kluber pitched very well. He kept them in this game, and... Going into the ninth inning, they were only down by two to one 
then that was when Glaber tied it with a big RBI single. And, you know, this was, this would be a back and forth game. And probably the reason for that is due to the silly runner on second base rule, which, you know, I've talked about this ad nauseum on the show. It's not a rule that I really like to engage and talk about. It's, it's, a dumb rule, but anyways, back to this game. The Nats took the would take the lead in the 10th, but the Yankees in their half, they would tie the game on a Mike Ford RBI single, and then with the Nats going down 1-2-3 in the 11th, the Yankees loaded the bases, and they set setting themselves up for another heroic plate appearance from Glaber Torres. He hit a ball down the third baseline. It was really a swinging bunt, if you really look at the replay, but the pitcher was unable to throw the guy out at home plate. Yankees win this by a score of four to three. And, you know, considering that going into this game, the Yankees had lost two in a row. Remember, after they had won the first two of the games of the Astros series, they had a chance to sweep. But unfortunately, the bullpen was not able to lock it down in the third game. They had that dud in game one of the National Series. But going into this one, the Yankees really needed to avoid a losing streak. And, had they lost this game, I think a lot of the good feelings coming from games one and two of the Astro series would have really felt like a bit of a distant memory because that's what losing streaks can do. However, with that being said, the Yankees did what they had to do. Down by one, they were able to rally despite getting despite getting dominated by Max Scherzer throughout most of the game. It was really, really a good win. And the crazy part is they would get another walk-off win the next day. Domingo Herman pitched six scoreless innings. Yankees gave him a two nothing lead thanks to single RBI single from Aaron Hicks. And then Glaber again, he has been on fire this weekend. He had a solo home run, but unfortunately the Nats would tie this game. Kyle Schwarber hit a two run home run to tie it. And then going into the bottom of the seventh, that was when really things didn't start to not look good. Giancarlo hit an inning inning double play. And, you know, one of the best things about baseball is sometimes a guy can come up to the plate after having a bat at bat and redeem himself. And you know what? Giancarlo came up with the bases loaded. He hits a game-winning single in the ninth inning. Yankees avoided the craziness of extra innings. They take the series two out of three. And it was a great homestand, too. This was the longest homestand of the season. In nine games the Yankees played in it, they went seven and two. And I'll give you another fun fact. Since that series where the Yankees had gotten swept, they have played six series, splitting two and winning the other four. And right now, if you take a look at this graphic, this ticker down below, I will give you the ALE standings. They are currently only one game behind the Boston Red Sox for first place. And they're actually tied with the, with the Toronto Blue Jays for, sec- for second. And we knew that Toronto was going to be a big threat going into the season. But anyways, let's get to the Tampa Bay series. So far, Yankees have been doing pretty well there. They've won the first game. Three, A few solo home runs helped. But, of course, Jordan Montgomery pitched six solid. Chapman got another save. And, you know, I got to give the Yankees credit. The lineup has pretty much been the same. It's not, like, dominant like, like everyone's expected. But the pitching has improved to the point where that doesn't necessarily matter. And... Having guys like Jordan Montgomery and Corey Kluber step up has been really key for the Yankees in order to stay in the thick of the race for the division. And as I said, this stretch of series for the Yankees has been very important. And of course, going into yesterday, you had a very good game pitched by Garrett Cole. He went eight innings, striking out 12. Yankees would end up winning one nothing, And again, 
what more can I say about Garrett Cole? This is the ace that we have been counting on for a very long time. And we have not had such a pitcher since CeCe Sabathia when he was in his prime. It is truly amazing. Although granted, we know he's, we're kind of expecting him to do that because of the contract, but still at the end of the day, it's something important, something the Yankees really need. And now let's talk about the other team that's been doing well in New York. That would be the Metropolitans, the Mets, they were a few games under 500. Things looked pretty dire. They had fired their hitting coach, Chili Davis. And so, you know, going into their series against the, um, it was the Arizona Diamondbacks. They were down four to two in game one. But then, you know, a funny thing happened in this game. In the middle of the seventh, two infielders, and mind you, these were their two best infielders on their team. It was Francisco Lindor and Jeff McNeil, would see a large creature strolling the dugout leading to the clubhouse. Like, and there's been a big debate. Was it a raccoon or was it a rat? And it kind of led to a little fistfight between the two. But yet the funny part about that is Francisco Lindor, it must have motivated him because he had a game tying two run home run. This was his first home run at City Field since his new since his acquisition with the Mets and since signing that contract. And obviously this should give him a big boost of confidence. But then the crazy part, of course, isn't even just that he got the big hit. It was that Patrick Mazika would come up in the bottom of the 10th. Game still tied. He had a runner on runners on second and third, I believe. He would get a hit kind of similar to Glaber Torres. It was a swinging bunt, so to speak, but the pitcher was unable to throw the guy out at home. Mets would walk it off, and despite not having a hit yet, this would be his first RBI of his, his major league career. Truly impressive. Game two, the Mets obviously would follow that up. Jeff McNeil would hit hit a salt, hit a home run early on, and they would end up winning four to two. And game three was the tough part. Jacob Degrom had a little bit of a health scare. He had to leave the game in the fifth inning. He was pitching pretty well. The Mets were up two to one, but he was still feeling a little sore, a little bit of soreness in his hips. And I think the Mets did the right thing with Jacob Degrom. One of the things I've often criticized the Mets for doing in years past was not handling injuries very well. Jacob deGrom, I was a little nervous that they were just going to keep making him pitch because, you know, he has been their best guy on the team right now. But as it turns out, I think putting him on the DL is the right thing to do because it's precautionary. You want to make sure he's healthy going into, going into the rest of the season. And of course, even right now, the Mets, haven't really needed to rely on DeGrom so much because you've also had guys like Taiwan Walker and Marcus Stroman pitching very effectively. And the Mets are, and the Mets are now on a seven game winning streak. And as you can see, that's winning streak. You look at the ticker at the bottom has catapulted them into first place for the division. So, you know, it's been a bit of a roller coaster, but it's that they've been, they've been very, they've both been very excited to watch. I'm talking about the Mets and the Yankees, of course. And, of course, after that sweep of the Diamondbacks, the Mets obviously would get a few more runs and they would recover to win that game. And going into the Orioles series, you know, they would be down by one run in the bottom of the ninth. Don Smith would tie it with an RBI single. And Pat Mazika, again, he gets his second RBI. It's another fielder's choice. And let me give you a fun fact about this guy. Since RBIs have become a, sta- a statistic in 1920, Patrick Mazika became the first guy to drive in multiple runs before getting his first hit. He's also the first guy to have his first two, two RBIs come 
of a walk-off. That's pretty crazy stuff, if you ask me. So he's been great. He's become a folk hero. And the big story for the Mets coming into their lat- their previous game, which was yesterday afternoon at 1230, Orioles starting pitcher Matt Harvey. Now, obviously, he's kind of had an up-and-down season. He, did a, he pitched a great game against the Yankees a few weeks ago in Baltimore, but in this start against the Mets, he did not have it. He gave up a lot of hits in the second inning, and really the Mets would go on to win this game 7-1. They, the Orioles were never really in this. Taiwan Walker, again, another pitcher who's really stepped it up for the Mets, and remember, they don't have – Jacob deGrom isn't even the only one that's on the, the IL right now. They also don't have Carlos Carrasco, and they're also still waiting on Noah Syndergaard to come back. So – the fact that the Mets are doing well in spite of all these injuries right now, I think it goes to show you that they could be a dangerous team in the foreseeable future regarding the season. And right now we have a comment. Tom Scavetta, Hank, how's it going, Tom? You can, all, as always, you can follow him on Tuesday nights for a review and preview. Another guy who I will hope to have on this show down the line. But of course, with the Mets getting their big sweep over, well, not really big. It was a mini sweep of two games Sarah, over the Baltimore Orioles. I think it is now time to bring on our guest for the day. And this is a good segue to bring on Brady Reuter. Brady, how's it going? Hey, what's going on, Hank? Doing well? Uh, Not much. It's um, been an interesting series. And um, sorry to see that your Orioles having a rough one against the Mets. But, you know, they've had an interesting year going into the season. And uh, obviously, they are in the midst of rebuild. But first and foremost, the one when I think about what the Orioles have done this season, the first guy I'm thinking of is their ace pitcher, and that's John Means. John Means is probably he's going to be the first ace, legitimate ace the Orioles have in a long time, probably since Mike Messina. And by the way, let me give you another fun fact: the last time any Orioles pitcher has thrown a no hitter, at, at least a nine inning no hitter from a starting pitcher, they had a combined no hitter in 1991. Right, that was Jim Palmer of the yeah. legendary 1969 Orioles. So it kind of tells you how how the or how little the Orioles are known for their pitching. But let's talk about this great start. I mean, he's a, he's got what a four no ERA and an ERA below two. I think he's at one twenty nine. Yeah, it's, it's like sub one three. It's like really low. Yeah, it's really impressive. How how what do you look for this guy going into the next few games of the season and like the future? Do you think this guy is a, is someone the Orioles will be building towards in the future? Yeah, I mean, I hope so, man. Um, John Means has definitely been the real deal pretty much, uh, you know, since he came on to the big leagues. So to kind of give a little bit of backstory, um, he uh, came out of high school and didn't really get any um, big college offers. I mean, he played junior college before he ended up transferring to West Virginia. Um, He was drafted 331st overall by the Orioles in 2014. um, And he wouldn't make his debut until the end of 2018. And to put in context, the 2018 season was uh, pretty god-awful for us. Uh, lost over 110 games. And, you know, he's waiting, basically sitting on his couch, waiting until the very end of September that year before he finally got his debut. Um, so then going into 2019, it was kind of safe to say that the expectations really weren't high on him. It was He was very unknown. Um, most of the players were unknown at that point because we had pretty much just began a whole new rebuild and we're starting from basically from square one. Um, so he would, uh, make his, um, honestly, his appearance pretty early because, uh, after his, um, first couple of games, he, he came on as a relief pitcher against the Yankees in New York. Um, he would go on and earn his role in the star rotation. And he actually became the lone representative for the Baltimore Orioles during the all-star game. 
he didn't actually wow. play in the game, but he was, yeah, he was the guy chosen, which was a surprise for many, including myself. I really thought Trey Mancini would have been the guy, but I mean, credit to John Means, he definitely earned it. Yeah, no, Tre- Means has been a great story. I really, I, I've liked what I've seen out of him so far. I watched a little bit of his his opening day performance against the Red Sox. He was absolutely dominant. And mind you, this this was not a joke Red Sox lineup. I've talked about it before, and I've explained in a few episodes why I had the Red Sox in third place, despite what everyone was saying before the season. The Red Sox, the Red Sox lineup can win them some games, and the fact that he, to see him shut them down. I think that was a little bit of a microcosm of, of what's to come. And given the Orioles track record with pitching, I really hope this guy does well. I'm really hoping it's not another Jake Arietta situation all over again. I mean, you've had some other solid pitchers such as Chris Tillman. Jeremy Guthrie was pretty good mm-hmm. too, no? Yeah, I remember him, um, especially like growing up as a, a young kid, you know, before that 2012, 2016 era of Buck Showalter when we were good. We had Jeremy Guthrie, like you said, but also Eric Bedard was kind of – he had that strong year in 2007. Uh, we traded him to the Seattle Mariners. That actually gave us Chris Tillman and Adam Jones, among some other players, in 2008. So I think we kind of won that trade looking back at it. But, mm-hmm. I mean, Eric Bedard, Jeremy Guthrie, and then Jake Arrieta. So with Jake Arrieta, like, we had so many chances we gave to him because he was part of the um, the big, like, the fabulous five. It was Jake Arrieta, Brian Mattis – Chris Tillman, Zach Britton, and there's one other guy I'm forgetting, but they're like those five guys were like supposed to be like right. the future of the team. And I mean, Zach Britton became a dominant closer. That's good on him. But like Chris Tillman was pretty solid for a while. I mean, he, between like the Buck Walter era, he was the really like the number one guy, but not a real ace like John Means is clearly showing he's a real ace. Um, so yeah, pitching, especially in Camden Yards, I mean, as you know, it's a hitter friendly ballpark. Hitters love going there ball just flies out of the yard. So it's really tough to pitch in Camden Yards. But but John Means is definitely well on his way, honestly, to be – he deserves to be in the talks for the Cy Young and for the All-Star game for not only being in the game but starting in the game as well. Yeah, very true. And uh, let me pop up some more comments. One from my mom and uh, one from uh, my cousin, always learned from Hank. Well, Glads, listen, you, you can learn a lot about from the Orioles from this guy too. Brady's a pretty hardcore Orioles fan, as you already – as you already have a sense right at the beginning of this episode. And now getting back to one of the other players you mentioned, you mentioned Trey Mancini at the end of this. He right. had a really good start to his career. I think in 2017, if Aaron Judge didn't have that historic rookie season, he might have been in the conversation for rookie of the year. And we all know his story. He missed 2019. He opted out like he probably would have had to opt out anyway because he was recovering from cancer. And to see him make a comeback from this is nothing short of remarkable. I love getting to see those feel good stories of players bouncing back. How do, what do you think of Trey? What's your opinion on the whole thing? Oh yeah. So Trey, uh, boom, boom, as his nickname goes, um, I like, yeah, that. he's been, he's been awesome. Um, honestly, he's kind of like the carryover from the end of the Bucks to Walter era because so he made his debut at the end of 2016, uh, against the Red Sox, like his first, like second or third at bat, he had a home run. It was ridiculous. I remember it was uh, really cool. I like, watched on TV, but, um, yeah, that 2017 season is rookie year. Honestly, like, like you see, you already talked about it, Hank, like Aaron judge kind of stole his thunder, but he still had a solid rookie <laughs> campaign. Like, yeah. Uh, and then in, um, 2019 was honestly like his best year. Um, that was last full season. And of course, major league baseball had, um, and then when Trey played every day, um, as an outfielder and he would spend time between as an outfielder, a first baseman, a DH, uh, right now things have kind of been in rotation trying to figure out where everyone lines up, but, um, yeah, that 2019 season, 
Um, he had 35 home runs and drove in 97. So he really was like the – honestly, he's a good power bat for any ball club. Any competing ball club could use a guy like him. Um, and so, like, especially 2020 last year was a weird year with COVID, but it's tough um, for him especially. I know, like, I was watching some of his videos and some of the stuff he put on Instagram and Facebook and the, the articles he'd written and the interviews he'd had. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, Sarah Perlman, the old uh, announcer for Mass, and she's actually – uh, dating him now. So like I was following her store on Instagram, but they were together for the whole way. So, you know, props to him. Um, and yeah. then, yeah. So going into this year, 2021, he had a bit of a slow start, which is understandable. I mean, the yeah. guy had cancer and was recovering from it. So he missed all his reps last year. I was just getting back into baseball speed. Um, but he's actually picked it up a bit the last couple of weeks. Um, he's currently like six in major league baseball with 29 RBIs. Um, and he's got seven home runs and an OPS of seven, five, five. So, you know, it's not like tearing the cover out of the ball, like MVP talks, but it's definitely noteworthy considering where he came from. And I might be biased in this, but I really think just him being out there alone, uh, especially playing the way he plays, he deserves to be the AL comeback player of the year, no matter honestly how he finishes, just him being out there alone. Hey, no, I don't, I don't think that's biased at all. I think, any player who returns from situations like like fighting cancer or something like that, I think that should automatically get them consideration for that. So I, I don't disagree with you at all. And, um, you know, one of the interesting things I was thinking about, I think given his production in 2019, I think it's possible that he might – the Orioles might have really been hanging in there longer if he was in that lineup in 2020. Because I, if I remember correctly, the Orioles were like – they were in the thick of a wild card race. Were they not last year? Oh, like, yeah. It was like going into – I remember this. It was like the first week of September. Um, they had that game against the Mets. So they had a two-game series against the Mets. They split one. And then they had like a four-game series at New York. Before that weekend, they were like a game behind the Yankees for like the last wild card. Um, and that was the the weird like eight teams make the playoffs until 2020 season where each conference or each league had eight teams make it. So, yeah, the Orioles were like right there with the Yankees. Um, and then they lost four in a row at New York. So that kind of was like honestly the nail in the coffin. But they were competitive. I mean, it was only a 60 game year, but uh, I mean, they were competitive with the guys they had. Like Anthony Santander had basically the most valuable Oriole for the year. He was he was breaking out, had an amazing year. Um, guys like Renato Nunez, uh, Hanser Alberto, Jose Iglesias, they're not there anymore, but they all had big offensive seasons, which kind of kept us in the thick of things longer than I really thought, but it was fun to watch for most of it. So, I mean, if Trey was there, who knows? But honestly, the big thing about him now is just having his presence back in the uh, clubhouse and him back with a lot of the younger guys and just kind of being that steady force of professionalism and uh, being also just a really good ball player too. All right. Now, before I get to my next question, we got a few more comments. I'm going to assume that that's James using the review and preview account on Facebook. He, d- he does that a lot, so that's that's just my guess. Uh, he asked me what's going on with my Yankees. Well, James, to answer your question, to make this short and sweet, pitching has gotten a lot better. Offense is still feast or famine, but they're winning games, so that's what matters. Next up, let's go back to Tom. Tom says he kind of likes Austin Hayes for the Orioles. Seems like a good young player. I agree with that comment. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, Willie Mays Hayes, as the nickname goes. Yeah, he's good. Um, <laughs> So we'll get to uh, him and Cedric Mullins. They both kind of tag team like the center field because both those guys were really brought up to be the center fielder. But um, so uh, Hayes has been uh, hurt a little bit, but he's coming back. Um, yeah, he's a really good ball player. He um, is young and him and Mullins are both, I think, are going to be uh, the future of the outfield um, as well as 
Heston Kerstad, who was drafted back in 2020. I think those three guys will make up the outfield for the Orioles for years to come. Now, getting back to Cedric Mullins, I think that guy has gotten off to such a great start. I, I watched the highlight of him against the Red Sox. He had that crazy infield triple, which I'm going to go on a lot out on a limb and say that was probably one of the lowest uh, launch angle triples that I've ever yeah. seen. So uh, what do you think of his, What's your opinions on his improvement? What have you noticed has been the big reason for his change of pace? Like a couple of years ago, I think he was hitting like about 186 or something sl- slightly below the Mendoza line. He had a decent year last year, but like now this year, I think he's starting to starting to put it all together. Is he another guy that you think the Orioles need to build around? Oh yeah. I think uh, he's definitely solidified the role as leadoff hitter. Um, he's been really fast. And like one thing last year, um, cause the last couple of years he had been up and down between the minor leagues and major leagues because he was struggling to get his average up. Um, like one thing he would really do to try to just work, on the little things he would lay bunts down and get and get bunts for base hit. Now he's still good at that, but this year he's more of just um, really good at just hitting like crazy. So throughout his career, he was a switch hitter um, between the minor leagues and, and his early stages of major leagues. Um, so he would, you know, bat from the right hand side against lefties, but really uh, this past off season in spring training, um, the hitters coach, you know, the, the coaches, excuse me. And then Brandon, I, they really helped get him the reps to work on just bag from the left-hand side of the plate. And I mean, it's really paid dividends because um, like his numbers are really good against lefties as a left-handed hitter. So I think it's really just like looking at his batting average. Now it's well over 300. And he was like the first couple weeks has been over 400, something crazy like that. Like he's just really become the leadoff hitter that you want. And he, he can steal bases. He can fly as you can, you know, you already touched about the infield triple. Um, he's a great defender too. him and Austin Hayes, both are like great center fielders. Um, yeah, his arm maybe isn't a hundred, like a hundred, but like, he's got the speed, he's got the glove, he's got pretty much all the other tools you want for a center fielder, you know? Yeah, definitely. You know what that triple, by the way, this kind of a silly little tangent I just wanted to get into, but you know what that triple reminded me of? You ever played those backyard baseball games when you were a kid? Oh yeah. Like on uh, the PC with Pablo Sanchez as like the MVP. Of course. Here's one of the craziest hacks you could try in that game. Bunt with Pete Wheeler, you're going to get a hit nine of every time, 10 times. He's that fast. And I'm sure, I, I think I saw a guy once get like an inside the park bunt home run with him. Really crazy. Wow. Like, don't get me wrong. Pablo Sanchez is always going to be the goat of that game. But Pete, oh, Wheeler, yeah. Pete, Pete Wheeler, low-key, was pretty lethal too because yeah. of that speed alone. I haven't played that game in so long. I got to get back into that now. Oh, yeah. No. Now, uh, anyways, back to the Orioles. What are your... So what are your thoughts overall on the rebuild as a whole? Are you optimistic about this? And uh, who are who are the got the main guys that you think are absolutely important to keep like two, three years down the line once once you once it probably starts to come into fruition? Right. So with the rebuild, it, it's I had kind of mixed thoughts about it. I think generally I'm pretty positive toward the direction we're going. Um obviously at the end of the Buck Showalter, Dan Duquette era at the end middle 2018, um, we really had to make some changes. So we had guys like Manny Machado and Jonathan Scope, who I saw his bobblehead here. I still miss him. Uh, he was good. But um, yeah, some of these guys, uh, they just had – we had to get rid of them. Like him and, of course, Kevin Gosman, Darren O'Day, and Zach Britton, we had to trade them away because we just couldn't afford to keep them, mainly because of Chris Davis's monster contract. But, um, yeah, so when we started kind of new, we really embraced analytics um, and – looking at data um, from a new perspective, especially with uh, GM Mike Elias. Of course, he was brought over from the Houston Astros organization. Now, I know that comes a lot of 
negative connotation, but he wasn't really involved with the, the scandal as much. He was like assistant GM with that. So as far as I know, he hasn't been punished or, or had any um, thing come against him. And he's condoned or excuse me, he's condemned. Yes. He's condemned everything that happened. So, um, you know, I don't really think he was responsible. But let's not forget the Astros already are a talented team that he helped build right. like Carlos Correa and George Springer, you know, these guys and, um, yeah, these guys are really solid. So, like, he was a part of building that team, um, the good aspect. So, yeah, um, they're also actually introducing a international baseball academy in the Dominican Republic. Finally, it seems like um, for some reason the Orioles in the past refused to really invest in international markets, which if you think about it, it's kind of crazy because Dominican Republic and some of these other Latin American countries, they produce a lot of talent. Like, some of the most uh, talented ball players, they come from these areas. So it only makes sense. you got to – put your money there and see where you can get. Yes, you want to rebuild and you have to start from uh, a young team, but you don't want to trade away your entire core because like, what's the point of rebuilding, right? If you're trying to get a new core um, and getting young guys coming up, well, if you have some guys that are young and are part of that rebuild, you can't just trade them away for more young guys, you know, kind of like the 76ers, right? Trust the process, as they say. Like, you got to have something there to kind of build around, right? So like being, saying that, um, I really think some of the guys I got to keep, I've already mentioned uh, Trey Mancini, of course, John Means, uh, we talked about at the beginning of the show here, uh, Austin Hayes, uh, like we said before, um, he has to be uh, right there as well. And Ryan Mountcastle, I know Mountcastle's kind of struggled the first couple of uh, months into this year. Um, they're still trying to figure out where to put him in the field, but he's still a young guy and he's proven he, he's a solid hitter. We got to keep him in the lineup and we got to build with right. him as part of the team. Um, and then Anthony Santander, I'm kind of – on the fence with, he was a rule five guy. He really kind of came into his in the last couple of years. I think he could be like the, th- the third or fourth outfielder um, down the road. Uh, and saying that um, for some of the young guys coming up, one of the outfielders I just mentioned was Heston Kerstad. He was drafted uh, in the 2020 um, draft number two overall. So I think Kerstad could be part of that outfield along with, you know, Hayes Mullins and Santander kind of all together. Um, and then, of course, uh, I'm sure you're well aware of Adley Rutschman, right? He was number one overall yeah. in 2019. Yeah, um, I, I guess people are kind of comparing him to Joe Maurer or even Matt Wieters. Of course, Matt Wieters was supposedly the uh, switch-hitting Jesus Maurer with power that they really saw out of him. Um, yeah, I like Wieters him. had a decent career, but I guess never lived up to the hype. Yeah, I remember. I liked him. He was a pretty solid catcher. I really thought he was going to be there for a while, but – I guess that never really panned out. And uh, yeah, yeah, Rushman, that's the guy whose name I remember hearing. They drafted him like number two. I think I think it'll be interesting to see how he pans out because like, you know, I know there's a lot of hype with these draft picks, but then again, the draft is also a crapshoot. So oh, yeah. who knows? It's 50-50. And you make a really solid point too. There's been a lot of teams. The Marlins are another example of teams that have like had a lot of prospects and then they just trade them and then they rebuild a rebuild like, Anytime there's like any little semblance of good coming out of their team, it's like they set themselves on fire. So yeah, you want to yeah. avoid that. And I like the point you made about the Dominican Academy. I think it seems to me that the Orioles have been trying to really adapt to like the new baseball culture. Cause don't get me wrong. Buck Showalter, as most of us Yankee fans know, he had a pretty solid tenure in New York too. He was a good manager. Like he's a guy that can turn teams around when they're like down in the dumps, but Oh, yeah. As far as his track record goes in the playoffs, that's pretty checkered. And I'm not just talking about the 2016 wildcard team. Look at 
look, watch game five, the 1995 LDS for between the Yankees and the Mariners. And you'll see, he made a lot of bad clunkers in that game that led to their loss, but I digress. Yeah. He's a solid manager, but of course, as we all know with baseball, every manager has their expiration date. So you knew he wasn't going to last rate last forever. And Dan Duquette has another pretty solid record. I mean, this is the guy who he built the 1994 Expos and that's the team that obviously got robbed of a potential world series due to the strike. And if you look at the 2004 Red Sox, obviously everybody knows that that team was mostly built by, I believe Theo Epstein. He built, he did most of the work for that team, but then Dan Duquette also got some of the bigger guys such as Jason Veritek, Manny Ramirez and Pedro Martinez to name a few. So I think he did a decent job with the Orioles for a few years, but eventually I don't know whether it was the fact that they were a small market team or whether it was the fact that like they didn't realize that the Orioles could no longer contribute, but eventually both had their expiration date and they had to move on. But it seems to me that Elliot, that is it Elias or Elias? I, Elias. I Elias. Thank you. seems to me that Elias knows what he's doing. And to segue into, into my next question, Brandon Hyde, I think, has done a pretty decent job. I know 2020 is a short season and I generally don't like to take a lot of stock from that because it was a shortened 60 game season and you can't really get a lot of like real, it's basically a sample size, so to speak. Oh, yeah. And you can't really judge him off of 2019 because he already inherited what was a mess, right? Like I don't think it was fair to expect him to come in and just lead them to close to 500, but 2020, he, he, the Orioles were pretty competitive, all things considered, under him. And as we mentioned this year, the Orioles have pretty much put up a lot of fights with, with him as the manager. And I think all things considered, he's done a good job. And even this year, they're not too far out of like first place of the wild card. They're only, they're only five and a half games out of first place as of as we speak right now. What what do you think of the job he's done? Do you do you think he's going to be here to stay in the long term? Uh, yeah, Hank. So um, you talked about. I mean. Him and I think the guys really fight for him. They play for him. So obviously Brandon High was kind of pulled into the team in early 2019 when we were at the beginning of a long rebuild. So you really couldn't expect much out of him in 2019 when we had guys like Richie Martin and, you know, Rio Ruiz and Renato Nunez, Hans Alberto, guys that like really haven't been uh, able to stick around for any teams very long. Um, so yeah, I mean, going from there, I mean, I really think that the guys have a lot of grit playing for him. I mean, especially in 2019, like one of the games I'm just thinking about a lot, it was really crazy. It's um, back in July 26, they ended up um, winning some like 15 or 16 inning, extra inning game against the Angels. And it was crazy because Stevie Wilkerson, like the outfielder, ended up coming in to pitch as a closer and got the save. So that game was really fun just watching that. Like, wow, look at this. This is so it's never happened before an outfielder records a save. It was really honestly just a testament. Like, yeah, these guys, even though they're rebuilding, you know, they still play hard. They still try to win, like no matter what. Um, so I think, um, you know, even last year, like it was a short year, but we were, like I said, we were competitive for a while. Um, and so this year, going into this year, I know we're five and a half games out. Uh, we're in last place right now, but we're in a lot of games. We just don't have necessarily the, one or two big hits we need to get back into the game. And we're still, you know, searching on what a regular lineup is going to be and our position players are going to be. But I really think that Hyde is the guy going forward, at least for the next four or five years. Yeah, I agree. And he seemed to, 
it seemed to me that he learned a lot from uh, Joe Madden in those few years that he was with the Cubs and he even had a world series ring coming out of that experience. So I think it'll be interesting to see how he does maybe a few years down the line. We'll see how, we'll see how that competitive they become with the Yankees and the Red Sox for years. Like I know usually, usually you see the Yankees and the Red Sox competing for the AL East. I've noticed this pattern, but then eventually there's kind of a rotation between the Blue Jays and the Rays. Like one of one of them will end up getting younger. The Rays obviously will be down for a few years. Then they obviously, you know, they're good at developing pitching. So they, they're not really down for too long. The Blue Jays, they had a, they had a short little stint where they were good. They kind of had to rebuild a bit and now they're right back on track and they have a, they have a fantastic team right now as it is. And um, obviously we know the Yankees and the Red Sox with their payroll, they're going to be in it. But the Orioles, I think, Right now, all things considered, from what I understand, and this is coming from a complete outsider's perspective, I think they're doing a solid job, and I'm really looking forward to see how everything plays out in the future. And, you know, I wish the best of luck from them. However, I do have one question, one more question for you, and this is kind of a fun question. So, yeah, I feel it's hard for me to really talk about the Orioles without talking about Camden Yards. Personally, I've been to like maybe what six or seven major league ballparks, I've seen at least in terms of games, ballparks for which I've seen the Yankees. And Camden, by far, is, is my favorite out of all those ballparks. So what's your what's your take on that ball, on Camden? Are you, are you in the same boat as I am with Camden? Is, is that one of your favorites, too? Oh, yeah. I mean, to put it in perspective, I've been to – honestly, I've only been to four major league ballparks, um, like just seeing baseball games. Uh, yeah, I mean, Camden Yards, I mean, it's always talked about. But, yeah, it's, it's a really fun place to watch a game. Um, I mean, of course, my parents grew up with Memorial Stadium back in the day in Baltimore. Um, and Camden Yards was built in 92. And as the saying goes, it's the ballpark that forever changed baseball because it was kind of the start of the retro era that was taking place. It's before you had the multifunctional, like, football, baseball stadiums are all big, bowl-sized uh, bean boxes that really weren't that appealing visually. But Camden Yards is really nice. Um also, I would say, because uh, I've been to Fenway Park, I would probably rank Fenway Park as my second favorite. I actually went there a couple summers ago. I watched a Red Sox-Dodgers game. I was in the area, so I just stopped on by. But Fenway was definitely a place that I wanted to get to because of all the history and um, just the, the iconic uh, view of it. It was really cool. Um, I've also – I watched the Orioles play um, at Citizens Bank Park in Philadelphia. The same is all right. It's not bad. Um, I think most stadiums now, honestly, kind of had a similar feel. Um Let's just bank park. I mean, I guess the only downside is in a parking lot. It's just a giant parking lot. So, like, I do like how Fenway and Camden Yards, and even to an extent Yankee Stadium, they're they're kind of in the the downtown or like the busy city area with a cool skyline in the background. Like, right, it feels like right in the neighborhood. Right um, now, I also been to Yankee Stadium, the new Yankee Stadium, like five or six years ago. Um, I mean, I also I don't know if you have different. Feelings in this, Hank. I don't know if you've been to old Yankee Stadium. Uh, I kind of wish I had gotten a chance to go to the Oh, old I've been there many a time. I've been there yeah. many a time. I, yeah, I miss um, the old stadium very much. Trust me. I yeah. I got nothing against the new place. Don't get me wrong. It's it's nice and it's beautiful, but like, trust me, any Yankee fan will tell you that nothing compares to the old house. You don't you don't get the same nostalgia of oh, this is where Ruth DiMaggio Garrig played. The new one, it's nice, but but it also feels a little bit like a mall in a fancied up place, if you know what I mean. Right, yeah. I mean, speaking of which, like, I just see all kinds of billboards and advertisements there, and I remember, like, 
yeah, it's not the best thing I want to look at, but it's still nice. Like it still has, you know, they try to replicate yeah. the the right field, the short ports with, with like three fourteen, I think, or three eighteen in right field yeah. to make it really uh, appealing to left-handed hitters, supposedly. So it still has a kind of cool things to it. Yeah. Um, and then you got you guys got the statues out there, like underneath the center field fence, right? Like, oh, uh, you mean Monument Park? Yeah, yeah, Monument Park is definitely a place I encourage anyone. Not just Yankee fans, but any baseball fan in particular needs to go to Monument Park at least once. Trust me on that one. A lot of history. And as I kind of told you off screen before the show, I'm very much into history, especially baseball. So, yeah, definitely something to check out. You can you get a little get a sense of how good Babe, guys like Babe Ruth, Derek Jeter, Mariano Rivera, Mickey Mantle, Jim, et cetera, were. So, yeah, I think a lot pretty much every baseball fan should visit Yankee Stadium at least once, even if it's not quite as good or historic as the old one was. Oh, right. Yeah, I mean, speaking of history, like, you know, Camden Yards, uh, just like 10 years ago, they put in a similar kind of feel that Yankee Stadium had where they had these statues that are put up. I don't know if you uh, remember this, Hank, but, like, Cal Ripken was um, – there was a big night. They honored him. Um, we played the Yankees that night, 2012, um, and it was, like, a big night where we had – giveaways uh, to all the fans as a replica for – I don't have a statue with me, unfortunately, but, um, yeah, it was a cool night where they built six statues. It was uh, – so Frank Robinson, Jim Palmer, Earl Weaver, Brooks Robinson, Eddie Murray, Cal Ripken. Um, those were, like, the six Orioles that are yep. in the Hall of Fame. Uh, it was really cool. They, they put them out there, and they're, like, right um, behind the batter's eye. And if you know, in Camden Yards, you got the batter's eye. You got that bar up there. And then there's, like, a little – uh, walking area, like a little terrace with picnic areas. They put their statues there. Uh, it's really cool. Um, and of course, you got the Babe Ruth statue, actually, right side County Yards, because supposedly Babe Ruth grew yep. up where second base sits in Baltimore, which is really, really cool. And then, of course, you got um, Utah Street with the BNO Warehouse, which yep. that's back from, I think, like the late 1800s or 1900s from back in the day from the BNO Railroad when that was put in. So there's a lot of history there, which is really uh, something cool. Oh, yeah. That's why, because it's, like, new and it has that old-school feel, I think that's why Baltimore is my favorite. Although, don't get me wrong. I have other ballparks that are on my bucket list. Wrigley Field is among the Wrigley, – Wrigley Field might be at the top of that list, actually, as is Pittsburgh, PNC Park, and I would also want to go back to Dodger Stadium. I went there, like, years ago, but I was, like, seven – I was, like, eight or nine years old, and I, I don't really remember much about it. I think – I don't even think it was remodeled yet, so that that's how – that shows you how long it was, how long ago it was. And Miggy Cabrera was playing there as a member of the Marlins. So, wow, there you go. Yeah, it was a while ago. And, um, anyways, before I let you go, I do want to ask you one more thing. Who's your favorite Baltimore Oriole of all time? This is this is just another one of those fun questions I like to ask some of my guests before oh, yeah. before the end. Yeah, no, sure. I would go with Nick Markakis, um, the guy I grew up watching for many years, especially during the dark days when I was a young kid going to. We had like little league days when I was growing up playing baseball. We'd go to the ball games on like a sunny afternoon. Yeah, we were losing like probably a hundred games a season, like ninety five hundred games a year. But Nick Markakis was always like that solid player. He played right field for the longest time, and he was a Gold Glover for many years. He always bat like two ninety ish, like two ninety two, two ninety three. Um, he get probably averaged like twenty, twenty five, thirty home runs. But he was always like the bring your lunch to work blue collar worker, where you know kind of ball player. He always played hard and he was a great hitter and he never complained. He had a cannon for an arm in right field and he was just a very professional hitter. And I was really sad to see him retire as a member of the Braves. Um, he had that great 
uh, standing ovation back in 2015. He came back to Camden Yards as a member of the Braves. Um, and yeah, it was a uh, movie tear up a bit. I got, I'm not gonna lie, but um, yeah, he was definitely my favorite guy between him and Brian Roberts, who's another great guy yeah, for a while. Um, you know, this was really going back before the Buck Showalter era. So yeah, Nick Marquez was definitely the guy. And actually, I got his jersey. Uh, let me pull it out for you real quick, just to oh, show you what I'm talking about. Yeah, here he is. My that's pretty, guy, Nick that's pretty cool. I love it. I. Oh, yeah. I could show you a lot of my uh, baseball shirts and jerseys, but unfortunately, I don't think time really permits for that to happen. But with that having be, being said, I want to thank you. I want to thank you so much, Brady, for coming on and taking the time to sharing your insights about the Orioles. I would definitely be more than happy to have you having you back on for another episode. Hopefully, maybe we can even have you joined on by your good buddy, Marty, from uh, Intercept Your Lunch podcast. He's He's another big Oriole fan who I think – I think you and him together on the show would definitely be fun to watch for sure. Yeah, man, we're going to have to have some long debates about where we're going. And especially with this Yankee series coming up, we'll have to, (laughs) Marty and I will have to team up on you and see uh, how we think we're going to end up. (laughs) Hey, look, I love that. It's a lot of fun. And listen, I enjoy talking baseball. Thanks again, Brady. I appreciate you coming on. Always a pleasure. Have a good one. Yeah, thanks, Hank. Thanks for having me on. It was a great time. All right, no problem. That was Brady Broider, another hard, a hardcore Oriole fan, and I think safe to say this guy might be one of the biggest Oriole fans I have ever met. He provided a lot of great insight and definitely good to learn some stuff about the Orioles' progress in rebuilding from him. It should be interesting to see where they go from here on out. And um, before I end the show, I have a few more topics I want to discuss, and these are two West Coast teams that have made some relatively big news over the past week or so. First, let's get into the LA Dodgers. The Dodgers going into this week, they remember, they started off with a 13-2 record. It was the best in the league, but don't forget, Bob Nightingale, the infamous Bob Nightingale, created a tweet saying that after, with the Dodgers' 13-2 start, they were on pace to go 140 wins and 22 losses. Well, unfortunately, we also know that Bob Nightingale is one of the biggest jinxes, and look at his track record of getting free agents wrong. That tells you all you need to know. So Bob Nightingale may or may not have had something to do with the Dodgers slide, but nevertheless, they lost five straight. Although you could also point to the fact that Fernando Tatis and the Padres broke kind of broke the Dodgers. I mean, that was the series that really may have started their downfall with San Diego having that epic six run come back in, in that series. So yeah, Dodgers at one point they were above 500. Prior to Monday, they were 18 and 17, and not to mention they had also lost eight of their last 10 games. So things have not been looking great for L.A. They finally won a series this week in Seattle, though. Gavin Lux, one of their big prospects that they really did not want to part with, hit a big three-run home run in the eighth inning, gave them a nice comeback in game one, and then game two, they pretty much dominated, winning 7-1. So they finally got that series out of the way. It was a brief two-game series, but, you know, it doesn't matter. They still won it, and the Dodgers had split a few of those mini two-game series in between the last series they won. So that that's what helps. So the real question for the Dodgers is what has been their main problem? I think for one thing, it's I think for the most part, it's been the offense. It's gone hot and cold, and as I mentioned, they had a stretch where they lost eight of their last ten games. And in that stretch, the of the eight games they lost, they had scored a total of 19 runs. And yet in the two games they won, they have scored 29. So 
Take that for what you will. It seems to me that the Dodgers are a boom or bust team. However, regarding the Dodgers, I'm really not worried about them because you look at it the other way around, they're only two and a half games out of first place. They they may be in third, about a half game behind the Padres, but when you look at all the talent that they have, even without Dustin May, their starting pitching is clearly not the issue. They're only second in the National League behind the Mets for the lowest ERA. Trevor Bauer has a 2.50 ERA, and Clayton Kershaw is 2.62 with a 5-3 record, so they're fine. And Walker Buehler, while he's 1-0, he's got a three, solid 3.50 ERA, I think the only problem is he has gotten screwed by a few things. Part of it may be due to the lack of run support, but having looked at a lot of the scores of the games that he has pitched, the bullpen has pretty much screwed screwed him over. Guys like Joe Kelly, Dennis Clevenger, and Dennis Santana have been getting knocked around a lot lately. And Kenley Jansen, though, he's though his ERA is fine. It's at 1.88. He's also walked a lot of batters in the 14 and the third innings pitched. That's not exactly something you want to see for a closer. And it basically builds up a lot of tension and suspense going into the ninth inning. So I guess the bullpen's been another thing. But when I look at the lineup, I look at a guy like Mookie Betts. Mookie Betts is the guy they traded for, paid him the big bucks. He's batting 258 with four home runs and 11 RBIs. Well, I don't necessarily think that that's terrible. It's really not what you'd expect to from a guy that has a 12-year contract for Six three hundred sixty-five million dollars. So, again, it's it may be a World Series hangover, but looking at the Dodgers, I think they're they're fine. I think two and a half games. You look on the flip side of the Giants, while they've gotten off to a solid start and have been one of the main surprises. You also look at a lot of games they lost, and that's been due to their bullpen blowing a lot of games. So, it's not quite as much of a runaway for them as it could be. And if they let the Dodgers hang around, they should be very careful because we know this is, these are the reigning world series champions. And as I mentioned, they've had a lot of talent, some of which has been injured, of course, because Cody Bellinger has missed a bit of time. And not to mention, they have also been without Dustin May, who at the time of his injury had a 2.74 ERA. And I think he was emerging as a bright spot in a pitching rotation that he would where in a pitching rotation that's already deep and he probably would have emerged as a solid, maybe two or three starter anywhere else, possibly even an ace if we're talking about a really bad team. So he had some potential and it really stinks to see him lose time due to that injury. But, you know, it is what it is. Unfortunately, these things happen, but and not to mention, they also are without guys like Corey Kniebel and Bruce Stargratterall in that bullpen. So I think it's a combination of injuries and a hot and cold offense. Again, knowing their experience, I got no reason to be worried about the Dodgers. I think they'll still probably, at the very least, they should be a wild card team for sure. And the last team I want to talk about before I sign off is the Oakland A's. Now, I'm sure you've probably heard, but the Oakland A's are in a situation where they are trying to get a new ballpark. They have been playing at Oakland Coliseum. I know it's probably changed its name over the course of a few years, but for the sake of for the sake of pure baseball, I'm not even going to call it by all these random corporate names. It's 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 Oakland Coliseum to me, and I'm sure everyone in California will agree with me. It's been there for 15 years. They want to. They've been trying to make multiple proposals to build the new Howard Terminal Stadium in Howard Terminal part of Oakland, which basically is in the downtown area. Which, in theory, it sounds like a great idea. You know, it, you'd bring the community together. A lot of people would be going to games, and then there would be a lot of Oakland A's merchandise shops and other businesses that could really do well. So 
the thought of them having a new park would, I think, would really rejuvenate their area. And we've seen in years past when the A's are good, their fans will come out in droves to watch their games. They'll they'll basically make a lot of noise. They bang, play those horns, bang those drums, whatnot, or as some people also might call it Ricky Henderson field, but either way, it's a historic ballpark in Oakland. And I think a lot of people would love to keep the team there. However, there are a few obstacles. I think one of which is the politics and the economy. I think a lot of people don't really want like the idea of having to spend so much, get so much of their taxpayer money, get put into this new project. So there's that. And Oakland as a whole is also not a very safe place to be. Like there's been a lot of crime there and not to mention, I think a lot of people don't really like the idea of getting taxed for a new ballpark. So there, there's that. And with that being said, I think the A's future could be in doubt because it seems to me that the A's are putting all their eggs in that one basket for the Howard Terminal. They've tried other plans like going to San Jose and other parts of Northern California, but those have just fallen through. But at the very least, unlike some of the other teams that have left Oakland, you had the Warriors playing right next to them. They moved to San Francisco. I'm sure a lot of residents of Oakland aren't really too happy about that because Oakland and San Francisco seems to be a big rivalry. And then, of course, you had the Raiders who, for the longest time, were their their co-tenant at Oakland Coliseum. They have since moved to Las Vegas, which pretty much seemed inevitable because Mark Davis, I think, just wanted to play in a new city that would get him a lot of money. So I, I guess I can see that. And unfortunately, I think the, the sharing a stadium with the Raiders may be the big reason as to why the A's might have to move out of their Coliseum. Because if you look in, you look at the batter's eye in center field, they have that really big eyesore called Mount Davis. And old, old pictures of Oakland Coliseum you showed that that ballpark used to look pretty nice. You had you had that big scoreboard staying out in center field and you had the good, nice view of like the Bay area. So I think that was probably one thing, but of course you also had the the fact that there were sewage problems. And I remember there was a game, the Yankees played there a couple of years ago where the power ran out. So that's another thing that doesn't help. And if power terminal is really their last resort, then it seems to me that Oakland, the Oakland A's are probably going to move. I'm leaning towards maybe, you know, a 60% shot that that happens at the very least. But is it possible that maybe they can stay? I think one thing that it would take to keep them in Oakland, and this has been proven with other cities, would be a long playoff run. I think playoff runs throughout history we've seen, they can be the difference between a team staying and leaving. You look at the, you look at the a comparison, for comparison's sake, I'm going to talk about the 94 Expos and the 1995 Seattle Mariners. The 1994 Expos, as I may have briefly mentioned when I talked about Dan Duquette with Brady, were among the best teams in Major League Baseball in 1994. They won 70 games at the time. They had 70 wins. No, 73 wins, actually, at the time of the strike. The Yankees had 70 wins with, with a close second. But they were among the best teams in baseball. All seemed to be looking promising for them. Then the strike happens, and obviously that team got dismantled afterwards. And 10 years later they ended up having to move and now they are at the Washington Nationals. And as a matter of fact, that is the only team that has had a relocation in major league baseball in my lifetime. The last, the last team that moved that moved before the Montreal Expos becoming the Washington Nationals was ironically the Washington senators in 1971 becoming the Texas Rangers. And the other team to compare them Oakland A's with would be the 1995 Seattle Mariners. The 95 Mariners 
you had a talented team featuring the likes of Jay Buhner, Edgar Martinez, and Ken Griffey. And that's another team I sort of mentioned with Brady. They, they had a furious late season comeback to win the division. They actually tied with the California Angels in the last day of the season. Mariners would end up winning that division with Randy Johnson winning game 163. They had that insane comeback with the Yankees to pretty much ensure that they would stay in Seattle because up until that point, there were votes as to whether they should build a new ballpark in Seattle. And had the had the Yankees won that series, it's very likely that the Seattle Mariners would probably be playing in Tampa right now. So, And going back to the A's, if we look at the A's current team right now, they've got a solid lineup of good hitters such as Matt Olson and Chapman and they could very, and they've been making the playoff consistently every year. They're always in the mix when it comes to best teams in the American League. Unfortunately for them, they haven't really quite been able to make it past the American League Division Series. And if that pattern continues, then who knows? Then maybe we, maybe that ends up leading to them having to move. I think another, another factor, by the way, that hasn't really helped was the COVID pandemic because I think. We know that everywhere in the world, the COVID pandemic has pretty much hurt a lot of economies. And I think that might also have something to do with the fact that the Oakland A's haven't really been able to get anywhere with talks of a new stadium. So there's that too. And I think maybe, who knows? I think if if they truly want to play at, play out the rest of the lease of that stadium, which ends in 2024, I think maybe they can delay another year, but who knows? I think... I think the MLB did the right thing by telling them you have to look elsewhere because if Howard Terminal doesn't work out, then unfortunately, as much as you people would like the A's to stay in Oakland, as much as they've had good history and good fans, it might unfortunately it's probably going to be what's going to happen. So there's that. But again, if the A's can somehow catch fire, if they can finally get past the ALDS, which has not happened since 2006, then anything is possible for the Oakland A's and. Who knows? I'm hoping for the sake of the city of Oakland, I hope it all works out. But anyways, I think that'll wrap up the show. As always, I'd like to encourage you to give us a follow on all forms of social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. And of course, don't forget to give us a subscribe to our YouTube channel. And like I said, this is Hank and Dichter. I will see you next week for another episode of Hitting for the Cycle. See you around, guys.